This is part 18 of For Your Discomfort. For Your Discomfort is a series of much needed conversations that you can tune into live on Fridays at 12.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time via Zoom. Now, these conversations are designed to elevate the voices that have routinely been unheard and underrepresented. Now, I did not set out to turn this into a podcast, but due to popular demand and our growing audience and the fact that I love you so much, I decided to provide the recordings of the audio. For all updates, please follow at For Your Discomfort on Instagram. And to sign up for the next live conversation, go to foryourdiscomfort.com. But in the meantime, white people, step into the room. Welcome <laughs> to part 18 of For Your Discomfort. My name is Bryce, full name Bryce Michael Wood. I say my full name every single time, simply to let you know my initials are BMW. And I'm proud of it, and you'll remember it forever and ever, amen. Like, it's just a, it's a beautiful Love set it. of initials. You know what I'm saying? Um, and we are blessed to have Day, uh, Deja and Sal joining us today. And um, before, we, before we get into any of our topics today, um, especially in light of everything that's been happening, I definitely want to take a moment of silence um, for all of the lives that have not only been lost, but taken, and all of the lives that have the black lives that have been put in jeopardy and compromising situations in ways that they're fighting for their life currently. Um, so if we could all just take a moment of silence. Thank you. Uh, you know, the, the point of the moment of silence is never to wallow, but it's simply to remember and to respect and to acknowledge why, you know, these for your discomfort conversations started in the first place. You know, it was on the heels of George Floyd and Amy Cooper and coming from a place of sheer exhaustion and a need for change. And so that's what we hope to accomplish here uh, with today's conversation. Um, we do not represent all Black people. All of the faces and the voices you will be seeing and hearing from today represent their own experiences and their own perspectives. But what links us and what bonds us is our Black and brown skin in a white world. It is not any of our jobs to educate anyone. White people, it's not a job to educate anybody, okay? That said, this conversation will be educational. So listen, this is not a Q&A. This is a sit down and listen. Um, you know, for your discomfort is education through observation of conversation. And uh, what better group of people to have on a conversation than the, the three ladies that I have in front of me. And without further ado, let's get into it. Um, Let's start introducing ourselves. Sal, if you wouldn't mind kicking us off, tell them who you are, what you do, where you're from. Say what's up. I'm McClally. I use she, her pronouns. I am from Brooklyn, New York. Um, I am a scientist by day and a strength coach by night. I am the founder of Strong Her Girls, of Strong H-E-R Girls. Um, and it's a digital wellness platform for women, by women, to get strong from the inside out. I'm also the founder of the Strong Her Girls movement. So I... Um, 
bring free digital fitness classes to BIPOC communities. Um, BIPOC stands for Black, Indigenous, People of Color, Youth, um, at the coronavirus, um, but it's been ongoing, so we're doing that into the school year. So that is that is me. What's up, Sal? Shouts out to you. We've been talking for like maybe a little over a month, and uh, I'm so excited to finally have you a part of this conversation. And let's transition into Deja. Tell them who you are, what you do. Say what's up to the people. Hi, everybody. My name is Deja, and I'm going to follow Sal's lead, and my pronouns are she and her as well. I love that you did that. Um, for me, I kind of have a blend of two worlds. I have a corporate job where I worked um, between, excuse me, Target Corporation and currently with Nike Inc. And then I also have kind of a other job where I teach fitness across a couple of studios, name a few uh, bespoke studios, and then a studio called Trill Fit. And so I blend both of my experience of being Black in corporate America with also being Black within general boutique fitness as well. Beautiful, beautiful. And last, and oh wait, before we get there, the, the bond and the, the connection here was, uh, I saw Deja, uh, she followed for your discomfort like maybe like a month, a month and a half ago. And I was like, who is this? And I saw Notre Dame in her bio. And if you didn't know before, I went to the University of Notre Dame. So we shared that. And I was like, in her DM <laughs> on site, like, who are you? What are you about? Who, what, why, where, when? Um, and I did the exact same thing to the next person that's about to introduce herself. Day, tell them who you are, what you do, say what's up to the people. What's up, everybody? Uh, my name is Day. Uh, I am, I wear many hats. I am an actress, dancer, uh, spoken word poet, fitness instructor. Um, it, everything sort of kind of snowballed in into the other thing um, with the poetry and writing being my first and foremost uh, first love. Um, then that went into the art sector of things with um, theater and dance being in my background and in um, me getting my bachelor's, um, my BA in that. And then from there, my athletic background and my dance background kind of blended together in order for me to step into the fitness realm, which is where I am now and it's kind of where I live. Um, but, you know, still at the same time, pursuing my creative endeavors and um, writing and speaking truth to power in any way that I can. Um, and that's kind of just been my outlet. And so I've sort of um, turned, uh, can we cuss? Because you can do whatever you want to do. Can we Dang, cuss rice? Do, yeah, yeah, do what <laughs> okay, you want to do. Because I was like, <laughs> you know, sometimes it just comes out. But basically um, what I wanted to say is that I basically turned um, talking my shit into an art form. So <laughs> that's where go. my spoken word and my writing comes into. And um, you'll see me be super vocal about things like that, especially when it comes to speaking truth to power on my platform. So, Come on, yeah. talk your shit, day. Like you can say whatever you want, however you <laughs> want to say it. This is the space for it, and the people are here to listen to exactly that. Um, today, I'm very excited for all of the topics that we touched on last night, and I'm, I'm, I'm eager to jump into them. But before we do that, I definitely want to shed light on, you know, Jacob Blake and just, you know, our, our condolences and um, just our, our, our warm thoughts go out to him and his family as he's recovering and hopefully, you know, makes a full recovery and has use of his legs in the future. Uh, I just, I didn't want to just like act like that's not what's happening right now amidst an election as well. Um, I'm not going to dive into politics, but I just want to put it on people's minds, like vote and know who and what you're voting for. Um, and all right, on, on that note, um, Deja, please, if you wouldn't mind kicking things off with 
black, what it means to be a black woman in corporate America. Wow, a pretty broad topic. Um, so I guess maybe a little bit about me. I've spent maybe about 12 years in corporate America, went in, in corporate America, went uh, straight into it right after graduation. And I think what's interesting, if you're kind of looking at either Instagram or a lot of different company pages, is really upon the murder of George Floyd, everyone's trying to come out here and be out here about Black Lives Matter, a lot of black, black squares, um, a lot of different things. But there's also this internal hand raising that's happening with like, well, well wait a minute. Um, yeah, great that you're really focused on what's happening out there. But there's a lot that happens internally that mirrors just really some of the struggles we have as Black Americans, um, specifically within corporate America. And I think um, I saw a stat the other day where I think across our Fortune 500 companies, only five CEOs are Black. And really, when you think about where most of us lie, it's mainly at the bottom totem poles and what it takes to get to the next level the systems you have to overcome, and even just sometimes the outright microaggressions or just aggression aggressions within that um, yeah. make it really tough. Yeah, I mean, something you said that you just said now that you said yesterday is, I love how you phrased microaggressions, and then you were like, or just straight up aggressions. I think sometimes um, white people in corporate America don't realize sort of the transgressions that they, you know, commit throughout the day. And like, some are able to get off and being like, oh, it was a microaggression. You know, I didn't realize, look, you know, unconscious bias, I'm working on it. But then some like to put a microaggression, put in a real aggression under the umbrella of a microaggression. And that is something that needs to not only stop, but it needs to be addressed. So often, like, oh no, you know, unconscious bias. I, I didn't realize that I made a microaggression. It's like, no, you just called me your chocolate best friend. That That's like a straight up you know aggression that there's nothing micro about that you know there's nothing subtle about that and uh you started to speak to it but i'd love for you to uh delve a bit deeper as far as like representation and higher positions and sort of the lack of that yeah and i think it's really twofold i think one when it comes to who people are hired or who's promoted you have a natural affinity for those who are very like you and i think sometimes given that corporate america is very much unlike us when it comes to relating or having to network harder or be, a, I would say, put an additional layer of, um, what is it, changing your tone or changing who you are to try to fit in to progress for, further. It's, I feel, a little bit of a layer that exists that doesn't exist for others. And I think even too, I hear a lot of this aspect of there's just no one out there. Or when I think about, um, I would love to hire people in higher positions, but there's just no one there. And I think that's something we have to continue to challenge in corporate America, because if you're only looking at your networks, sitting there as a Caucasian individual, um, how can you expect to find anyone else if you don't really have a network naturally there? And you're going to have to partner with organizations, firms that specialize within that. There's just a whole separate yeah. need of dedication to be intentional on that aspect. For, and, and, and something that I want to highlight in what you're saying is that you're, what you said was, was key about, you know, their network and what your network looks like and what the people you surround yourself look like. And if, if there's a lack of diversity, it's definitely going to be, it's going to have to be an active decision, right? Totally. It's not something that you're going to happen upon, especially at the higher ranks in a corporate America like setting, right? You're not going to happen upon a whole bunch of like high ranking black executives. That's just not something you get to stumble into and be like, ah, 
here we go. Now I get to add, you know, black people to my network. Like it's actually going to be something you have to seek out because there are systems that have been put in place that haven't allowed for us to simply just live in those spaces and operate in those spaces. And speaking of operating in uh, predominantly white spaces, I actually wanted to have Day come on and speak about, and I'll just blanket it as white coworkers, and then I'll just let you do what you do with it. Talk your shit, Day. Yeah, um, so for me, I think one of the biggest things um, at the inception of this movement that took place, um, or that sort of kind of added on to the movement um, this summer was the whole premise of the Amy Cooper uh, situation and how, how that can sort of mirror workplace in a sense. And, you know, everyone, um, as Deja was saying, was talking about, you know, placing the black squares and showing their solidarity in that way. And for me, the biggest thing was looking and seeing who was really about it. Um, and that's where that kind of came in for me, the importance of knowing where our white coworkers and our uh, white friends, where they stand. Um, because we are navigating in fitness spaces that are predominantly white, in corporate spaces that are predominantly white. And I have um, 20 to 30 Amy Coopers in a class um, on a daily basis. And to me, that is the difference between life or death is knowing where they stand, knowing whether they're with you or against you. The whole um, not racist being or versus anti-racist. And right. um, it's really disconcerting to know that people are kind of like just towing the line or they want to be impartial and, and now is not the time to do that. Yeah, definitely Some, I want to I want to highlight what you said about it being life or death, like knowing where someone stands you know, it could sound a little extreme, but I think it's right on. And I think it is that dramatic and it is that extreme. Like knowing where your white coworker stands is, you know, a matter of life and death because it's about the company you keep. And it's about, you know, you know, who you support. Do you support me or do you support what I provide? And that's like, you know, the biggest question that we, we've questioned that throughout almost every episode. Like, do you value me? Or do you value my service? Do you value me or do you value uh, my entertainment value? Do you value me or do you value how I'm going to motivate you to get those last couple crunches in before we like hit this big hill? You know, like what is like what what do you actually value about me? But I, I actually uh, before we switch over, I wanted you to talk about what it meant to be safe in that company, like the importance of, of safety and feeling safe amongst your white coworkers. Yeah, um, for me, it comes down to, well, you never know what's going to happen. And if there's a situation that happens, um, we see it every single day. There are things that are happening in the news that nobody ever thought would happen. Um, and white people are so surprised at the things that are happening and that racism actually still exists. But when, and everybody can kind of say that they're for something until push comes to shove and maybe you're in a situation where you actually have to maybe even place yourself as a white ally in between um, your black friend or black coworker um, and, you know, something that's trying to come at them or potentially harm them, you know? So I feel like that's what it comes down to is that 
we have to sort of understand like there's this misconception that racism is a black people problem, but it's really a white people problem. And right. I feel like when it comes to those situations, we have to stop relying on black people to do the work to stop other white people from being racist. And it needs to be white people who check white people on their racism and their biases. And it needs to start in the workplace. It needs to start in the gym. It needs to start in any space that you share with a black person. Absolutely. And I think a better way to, if, if you are white and wondering like, how, how do I do that? Like, how do I, one, understand and two, put myself in, you know, quote unquote, harm's way. Like, when do I even have the opportunity? Uh, I had like an interview yesterday and we were talking about in certain spaces, it is just white. Like no matter, like no matter how you cut it up, right? Like in, in a certain uh, corporate spaces and certain fitness boutique spaces, like it is just like a, a, it just is a white space. And like, there's no real uh, attempt at diversity, but there's no like, you know, active uh, force against diversity either. It just is what it is, right? It's just like, this just is a white space. And I was saying, you know, like during a season like this, I would challenge uh, CEOs and, and presidents in organizations like that to, you know, have a meeting with just like everybody in the room and be like, all right, so just to be clear, like, we just want to be white? Show of hands. No, because like, it just is white here. And so like, is that our goal? Is that our plan? Was that the goal? Oh, and if it is like, okay, but can we like comfortably say that that's the plan? Or is it uncomfortable to be like, we wanted this to be white only? Great. You know what I mean? Like, those are sort of the questions that I think are easy to ask your, yourself if you're in that position and then easy to then feel uncomfortable and be like, we should probably change it because it is just white here. You know what I mean? And who we're marketing to or who our consumer is, is just white. And I think something that is easily able to help change that is just representation and being and, and having black people or, or BIPOC people represented in the room. And I'd love for Sal to sort of hop on and expand upon what that can look like. We don't typically see ourselves as black people or more specifically black women um, in these spaces of influence in the workplace, like the people who are in these positions of power mostly white, mostly white men. Um, so there's not only that racial barrier, but also that gender barrier. And it's really hard to be what you can't see. Um, you have to overcome that challenge and really like be of that. Um, and it's because everyone that you see in that role comes from a certain background, um, maybe like, like very privileged backgrounds as Deja was saying. I want you to think about like why that is um, and why we're valued in certain roles but not others. Like we're valued as instructors, as um, front desk staff, as custodial staff. But as soon as like we start reaching for like a higher position, it's like, oh, you're underqualified. You don't have enough experience. All these need to shake the table a whole new table for ourselves that values us that values our needs um, and our community's needs. No, that's that. I think uh, when I'm, we're, I was starting to have a little trouble hearing you, um, it might be the, maybe it was just me, uh, but I, you were cutting in and out. I don't know what that was, but I caught 
most of everything you said and something that is uh, a major key in what you just said is you can't, yeah, I think maybe it's your AirPods, I'm not sure, uh, but you can't be uh, what you can't see. And I, and I love that. I love that it, it's really hard to shoot for something or, or want to be in a position if you can't, if you haven't seen somebody that looks like you do it before or someone that represents you in those positions to be like, oh, I want to be like, and then insert, you know, name like, and it's very easy, you know, in the black community to say like, I want to be like Jordan. I don't know. I want to be like Jerry Rice. I want to be like Beyonce. I want to be like, uh, I don't know, LeBron James. But then all, for the most part, we have like, I want to be like Oprah and like Oprah is like Oprah. And like, that's the, like, that's our one, like, I want to be like Oprah. And there's like our one, whereas like for everybody else, you have your, your Bill Gates's and like the, and, uh, everybody actually, I'm not about to go down the list because that was going to be a very long list and take a very long time. But I think you understand what I'm saying. And something I want you to talk to a bit more is sort of how there's not a lot of room for possibility or greater opportunity and what we as Black people then have to resort to? Yeah, I think what usually happens is we're either not invited to these roles or we are invited to these roles. And then when we bring like our full selves and um, ask to feel like welcome, needed and happy, and we're pointing out these issues in the organization, then um, it's really hard to work within like that organizational structure, those policies. Um, when we try to hold these organizations accountable, then, you know, there's a lot of denial, a lot of ignoring, a lot of blaming, um, and then the responsibility is placed on us to fix it. Um, yeah. And at the, the end, it's either like you fight through that or you leave the organization because of all that structural, um, I guess, aggression would be the best way to put yeah. it. Yeah, and like something you said yesterday, which I like clung to is like, and then you just have to go start your own shit. And like, I think a lot of people here have like done that in a way, like you've had to figure out how to be, uh, we've had to maneuver for lack of a better way of saying it. Like we've had to figure out ways in which to be successful or ways in which to be our own boss or ways in which to have our voices elevated and heard, i.e. for your discomfort. Like this, this needed to be done so that all of our voices can be amplified and heard in a way that they haven't been before. And I think so often when you're specifically operating in a, in a corporate structure or just in a system that's been established before you got there, once you do get there, it's kind of like a bowling ball into a lot of pins, right? And the, the metaphor is perfect because it's a whole bunch of white pins and one bowling ball because it's never a whole bunch of bowling balls. It's never a whole bunch of us walking into those positions. It's literally a whole bunch of white pins and then us and we're perceived as a bowling ball when we whisper like, a, mm, I don't like that. Then it's like, <laughs> oh no, like the black person just knocked down all of the plans. They just came tumbling in with all of their pride and like ideas and like, that's not the case, it's just, perception is power and for whatever reason the perception of black people right now is like uh specifically black women is like angry or like necessary like unnecessarily strong or like hard-willed or like gonna get it done however she's gonna get it done she has the attitude a b and c and like that's a terrible perception that perception is inaccurate but when those moments happen it's because we've been driven to act like that or we've been driven to respond like that because we haven't been heard otherwise. And I wanna make that painfully clear. You know, anybody would respond or act the way that 
black people in general and then sometimes black women have been labeled as acting because we've not been heard or because black women have not been heard have been and have been definitely underrepresented and um that's due to a lack of diversity i mean at the end of the day people don't aren't comfortable with or are afraid of what they don't understand right and um something that has sort of cloaked that fear of understanding or something that has sort of like I don't know, given like an easy out for not understanding or lack of a willingness to understand the black experience is something that Dave's gonna talk about. And I'm not even gonna say the title. I actually just want you to introduce this next topic because it, it was great when we talked about it. And I, I just want you to take full, full reign. Go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, and um, even before I even touch on it, um, what you were talking about before when it's about the perception of the black woman and the stereotypes and how we've sort of been driven into those stereotypes and then criticized for them. It's like uh, culture versus survival, right? And it, it comes to a point where survival almost becomes cultural, you know? Um, right. So that it's like, that's something that is attached to our culture, but it's not really something that we really had much of a choice in, you know? Um, yeah. But yeah, going forward into, um, wellness and diversity and wellness um there's an intersection where spirituality and wellness meet um and i guess you know people often attribute it to um yoga or things like that but it's not necessarily yes it, yoga is a part of that um but it's not necessarily just restricted to that practice but there's this weird sort of um there's no space for talks around black bodies. It's always about um, sort of, it's like glazed over with just talking about spirituality and um, getting your spirit right and your soul right and getting centered in wellness. When it, and, but there's no room for any talk about the black experience and how that may be different for black people. And it's interesting to me, um, aside from it just being completely irritating is what comes to mind is that like why aren't black bodies as important as black souls or black spirits or black energies or whatever you attach your ascension to right um and people have been throwing out these uh, this phrase since the movement started this summer that you know like the real revolution is a revolution of consciousness but i feel like that's where consciousness starts to hit a wall for me um in the wellness community because you can only go as far as race and then it stops and then there's like, yeah, I understand that, you know, all things are one and, you know, in reality, we are all the same thing and we're all parts of each other. Then why isn't it okay to acknowledge those differences and say how those differences can inform our spiritual experience or our energetic experiences? Because it does. So I think it was um, Deja that said it yesterday when um, she said spiritual bypassing is what it yes. feels like. It's like this um, whitewashed spirituality that it's like, you know, there's no room for race or culture in it. It's literally just, let's just stick to this because it's safe here and everyone can kind of relate to it, but not really, you know? Yeah, I think what was very intriguing about you bringing up this topic was that spirituality and wellness can, can be, I'm not saying it 100% is, but can be used as a scapegoat. Like, uh, because it is this, we are all one and like everybody is connected. And I, you know, yes, like a thousand percent, but in a season like this, uh, and if there are black bodies in your room or just BIPOC bodies in your room, 
to not acknowledge that experience can sometimes feel alienating. Um, because while everyone in the room that is, you know, just white uh, is experiencing this release and, and I don't know, like this ascension, like there is potentially a black body in the room that is not feeling the same thing because whatever is weighing them down is just that much more heavy and it's not being acknowledged. And because it's not acknowledged, they're not able to just address it head on so that they can also get get my zen get my breath work right get my get my deepest stretch in you know what i mean like there there can, there can be this spiritual evading and uh i had never heard it said that way until we spoke last night and i just wanted to make sure we said it plain that it happens like don't use spiritual spirituality and wellness as a scapegoat to be good and woke and not actually have to address the issues at hand and sort of just keep everything like on a spiritual plane and like it's light and it's cool and like we're not even going to do that because like i'm woke obviously so why even have to do it which like no like still like if you are woke then like do it like it's fine nobody's gonna come for you you know what i mean but the reason you don't is because it's icky and uncomfortable and you don't want to have to have that in your spiritual wellness practice so it's not uh, it's not I understand it but at the same time it's not right so like handle it fix it <laughs> um, figure it out uh Deja I want to transition into because we're, so we're talking about spirituality and wellness mm -hmm. and sort of not being in and black people feeling alienated in those spaces if they're not you know being represented or spoken to or spoken about in their experience and I kind of want to trans transition into fitness spaces in particular as it pertains to hip-hop yeah and i might um i might just want to add one point to support sure. you on the spiritual bypassing yeah, piece absolutely it's a lot of sometimes we just need love and light we just need to hold strong we just need to be confident and i think there's sometimes too as a, an instructor saying that to a black client there's sometimes a sense of authenticity that's impossible to carry and you trying to connect with them, trying to guide them, trying to be there for them. When you kind of just follow it up to just like, we just need to be positive. We just need to be focused. We just need to think about love. We need prayers. We just need to hold on to each other, right? It just feels yeah, like almost yeah. diminishing to yeah. the experience. You know, Jacob Blake was just shot seven times in the back. How can, I don't see the connection between how that impacts me and what you're kind of telling me how spiritually I should be and what will take me to get to where I need to go to. I, I agree yeah. with you 100%. I think the other thing related to that too is just sometimes I get a lot of the question around um, when is it safe to play hip hop? When can I go back and what does that really mean? And I think sometimes too, as I hear it, it's something that just kind of like hurts my heart a little bit, you know, especially in the wake of just really the severity of the murders we're seeing, um, yeah. the protesting, um, the issues we have with systemic racism. And I sometimes perceive a just such a commitment to what are the five steps I got to do to get back to doing that. And I wish I saw that same commitment to actually just dismantling a racist system where we're not representing, where we're getting killed, where right um, we're not being promoted, we're not being honored. And it's just interesting to see the tunnel vision come in where we're so focused on, I need to check the box within that where it's a larger thing. I think also too, sometimes I sit in classes and I've sat in classes where instructors have played Tupac's changes and in the midst of what we're talking about. I'm like, have you ever listened to the words? And what does that really mean to you? Um, Childish Gambino's This Is America, right? right? How can you 
listen to it and watch it and not be motivated and moved. Um, we're celebrating Meek Mill coming out of prison and when he's back, but have you ever thought about the context under which he was sent right. and how it compares to really the experience of people who aren't black and what is like, how can you also adopt and inherit really what comes with that too? It just is almost appropriating culturally when it comes to just what do I need to do to just play it and why are you right. so playing it? Yeah, and it goes back to sort of something I spoke to earlier and what we've been we've been speaking to throughout this series as far as like what we provide versus who we are. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like the music and the culture that exists because of Black people and, and is provided because of Black people and is celebrated and like very popular and like is the shit. Like that's what we provide, but it's not who we are. And so for someone to be like, just tell me what I got to do yeah. to get back to how like I can play hip-hop because I need it like I but I don't want to be wrong and like that's a bigger issue right like it's not about not wanting to be wrong or wanting to be right it's about change it's it's not about the the optics or what you look like or what how this might be received by your class and rather it should just be you know the main goal of this this series is you know I want people to have a passion for people Right. And so if you feel like you've gained that and if you feel like you've been doing all of the things and it still doesn't sit right with you to play hip hop, then maybe you just don't for a while. You know what I mean? And there's nothing wrong with that, <laughs> you know, and there's also nothing wrong with, to me, feeling like, look, I'm doing everything. I'm, I'm doing all of the things. In fact, I've always been doing all of the things. I've never felt a way about playing hip hop. It's what I grew up only, you know, it's what I grew up exclusively listening to. It is my favorite music. And like, I just know my, you know, like I know it, like I'm here for, like, like my roommate, he can, he can give you all of pop. He can give you all of Pac's catalog. He can give you all of Biggie's catalog. He can give you all of Jay-Z's catalog. And the list goes on. He is a hip hop rap head. He's a white guy from Danbury but that's my, that's my best friend and that's my guy, right? And I know where he grew up, how he grew up in proximity to the black people that he grew up with. So when I met him, there was already like a thing. I was like, you, okay. For whatever reason, like I just get, I know that you know, you know what I mean? Like I know that like you understand and that this has nothing to do with appropriation. The way you talk, the way you walk is who you are. You know what I mean? This has nothing to do with putting on anything. This is who you are. So like for, for him, like I would be like, bro, yeah, you've always only listened to that. Why would I ask you to all of a sudden, yeah. you know, stop? But for someone else that truly knows like, yeah, I've used this because it's popular or I've used this because I know that this is what is going to get it popping in my class. Like that's a different thing. Yeah. That's like a different conversation to have internally with yourself. And I was just glad that you brought it up because I didn't even know like that was a, a discussion that was happening. When can I play hip hop again? <laughs> and I think cool. I would just add too, I think it's just a matter of too, just engagement, right, in the Black experience and this idea of pick, picking parts of the Black experience and leaving the others, right? And I think for us, we are a part of it 100%. We are in it 100%. Like, I wish I could just choose hip hop and forget some of the other bad stuff, right? And don't get me wrong, I'm being a little sarcastic. I love being a Black woman, but just this idea of kind of picking a certain component and just leaving all the bad stuff. Um, yeah police brutality and not having to not saying a word about it yeah so uh i want to say like around week i don't know episode five we talked about uh like blackface and um you know sometimes blackness being a costume that people want to put on whether it's their hair whether it's their clothes mm -hmm. whether it's the way they walk talk music they listen to how they associate 
And then uh, we were ta- I was talking to Kamel. He didn't say it in the actual episode a couple of weeks ago, but he was like, yeah, sometimes white people think it's like a, a video game and they just want to like be black, but like in the game. But then when they get to us, like the hard level, they, you know, they off the game. Like, they're like, oh, okay. Like, <laughs> you know, like police brutality, like, all right, I'm out. Like, I can't, I don't know how to, you know, I don't know how to navigate this, this level of being black. You know what I mean? All right, I'm done. I'm going to put the game down. Had my black experience. You know what I mean? Whereas like we're in the game indefinitely there is no putting the controllers down there is no unplugging the console right like we are wake up like this go to sleep like this no matter what and uh yeah that was like a long rant to just say i agree and (laughs) uh but uh, to to that end and to that point um as far as like potential appropriation is concerned there is for lack of a better phrase, like a tokenizing that can come out of that if you are a black instructor amongst a whole bunch of like white instructors. Uh, but that is not just limited to fitness studios. It is just everywhere. And I'd love for Sal to come back on and sort of talk about what can be tokenizing and or what is colorism. Sure. So tokenism um, is basically diversity without the act of inclusion. It's this practice of making a symbolic effort, um, a really performative effort to do something. Um, usually recruiting people from an underrepresented group in order to give like the appearance of racial equality in a, in a workforce. And we, we see it on like um, advertisements for a lot of these boutique studios. Like they'll have like a black instructor, diversity of instructors, a diversity of clientele. And then you get into the studio and you're like, Can somebody lie to me? Like everyone <laughs> is a similar body type. Um, and it can feel very alienating to, to be in that experience. Um, and colleges do that too, like college brochures, like they'll put the whole globe on like the cover of the brochure, but then you get to campus and it's very homogenous. Um, so tokenism has no real impact. It's empty action and it's all done for public image, kind of like the black squares, the blackout Tuesday. It's like, okay, we did this. We we're showing that we care, but where is the action? Where is the real impact? And this intertwines with um, colorism. So colorism is differential treatment based on skin color. And typically it leans towards favoritism towards those who are lighter in skin tone um, and mistreatment and exclusion of those with darker skin tone. So what really is valued is certain features. So it's this proximity to whiteness. So black people are all gonna have different experiences based on how we, um, how closely we fit into like white society. So having like lighter skin and like um, looser textured hair, like that's gonna play a role in the way that you're treated in society. Um, body type, your name, your accent, um, religious practices, these all lead um, or can influence like the harassment we face, the prejudice we face, the discrimination that we face. and darker skinned folks are the ones that are receiving most of this because of the way that colorism tokens them play out. Yeah, I totally agree. I think that was like well said, well executed. Like, thank you so much, Sal, for like providing straight up fact and straight up definition to what tokenism is and what colorism is. We've talked about it ad agnosium on, you know, on this series, but for you to provide it in such a clear cut black and white way is the way and I'm glad you were able to to do that something I definitely wanted to touch on when it comes to 
uh, it being sort of like a half-assed attempt at diversity <laughs> inclusion is sort of some of the companies that I've spoken with. And I, you know, as, as I've always been saying, like there are people like that want to be, you know, associated with and partner with for your discomfort for, you know, what it's doing and sort of the, the wave that it's caught and, you know, I'm blessed that it has, but this, you know, was never the plan or the idea, right? I just, you know, I really do have a passion for this and want to see change, but what I would notice if I would go to these companies' websites and or Instagram pages, right? Since like, you know, like I would go to before George Floyd and before Amy Cooper and like scroll from the beginning, right? And be like, okay, okay. Oh, palatable black person, got it. Like light skin, curly hair, blue eyes, all right. Scroll, 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 scroll. Ooh, one more light skin, curly hair, <laughs> black person. Scroll, scroll, scroll. Ooh, another palatable black person right here. And then like, you know, just mostly just white women for, they're just white women, like mostly white women all the time. And then after George Floyd, what I started to see was it was sort of blatant and like, just didn't even, I don't know, didn't fit. Like, was it like, if it was a clothing, if it was a clothing brand, like they would have like a dark skinned woman in something that just wasn't even flattering like on her or for her or like made to fit her and it was like uncomfortable like and my girlfriend has seen some of these things as well where it's like I don't know why you know this is this is happening and it was like clearly like look hey see in our clothes we have not only a black woman but a dark-skinned black woman it was like well first off make it so that it you know it, it make it like try to make us believe that you made this for her or that you make clothing that is inclusive of all skin tones body types like just like what she said of like sometimes you walk into a space and like nobody looks anything like you from your skin color to your body type and that can be intimidating like regardless of color like walking into a space and um everybody has the same body type that's intimidating in and of itself and it is like exclusion exclusionary no what exclusive in and of itself um but I, I was happy that she sort of cleared up the difference between tokenism and colorism down to the features and what that means is it's just what's in close proximity to whiteness and like that's what is that'll determine how you're treated and lastly you said um yeah how you speak i was like okay that's real because they just started to hit on code switching a bit earlier and that is so real that is that is so real like i was taught and raised to be incredibly articulate so that i would be perceived in a certain light right i was uh purposely named bryce so that on an application you would not know what i am like if i don't put like a, a race you have no idea who's gonna walk into the room. And so like that was in an attempt or in an effort to give me at least a, a better shot at the at the job or a better shot at, at bettering myself. That you were about to say something? Yeah. Yeah, I just wanted to touch on it. Um, like for me and my understanding of it is almost like there's this like subconscious passive dehumanization that happens when it comes with tokenism because it's like, I, it feels like white people would rather our experiences be more tokenized and monolithic and like fit into the boxes that they've created for us because in their from their perception it sort of makes us easier to understand um so it kind of creates this reality for them um for us to un for them to understand us even if that reality is false or even if that perception is completely false and it's like 
what it really just tells me is that like you really don't care to understand us like you just want us to be what you want us to be and that's uh it's always really clear to me especially when i meet like a new group of white people or when i'm in a space where i'm like the only black person and then there's always all these questions that are really only directed towards me and no one else like oh so where are you from oh you're from the bronx oh did you grow up there or did you move there recently oh you grew up there Okay, and then it's like all these other questions that kind of come with it and like, you know, because they're like, I guess, confused about the fact that like, oh, there's this girl from the Bronx, but she doesn't really act like she's from the Bronx. Are you sure you're from the Bronx? Oh, okay, you don't really talk like you're from the Bronx. Where did you go to school? You know what I mean? And it's like all these different things that come into it. And it's just like, okay, you know, it's uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah, we, I, I can't remember exactly what I talked about, what I said in the interview I was in yesterday. But we talked about this very thing of like, you know, in this season, like a lot of white people are coming to their black friends or black coworkers being, you know, trying to get all of the insight and all of the information from like that one black person. And it can be aggressive. And I like tried to flip it on its head and be like, how would you feel, you know, if like everybody was like, oh, you're from Kentucky? What are you like, were you born in Kentucky or did you move to Kentucky? Okay, does everyone in Kentucky talk like this? Or is it like, are you like the exception? Because I heard that people from Kentucky talk like this. So I'm just not sure. Oh, so not everybody talks like this in Kentucky. Cool, what about your hair? Like, is, is this like a Kentucky thing? Like your hair, like being like this? Is this like, is this like a Kentucky blonde? Or, you know, like just like, I, I tried to flip it on its head. Like, how would you feel if someone asked these things that you think are just, normal like everybody does this like how would you feel if someone then began to like pick apart your identity because they needed to feel safe or they needed they needed to understand or they needed to be able to like identify like who they're talking to or or what they're talking to because sometimes when these questions are asked it's it goes past me being a human being and more about just like placing me like like once i say notre dame People are like comfy. They're good. People are fine. Like, oh, where'd you go to undergrad? I'm like, Notre Dame. They're like, oh my God, great. I had, okay, well, all right. No, he went to Notre Dame. Okay, yeah, no, you can come talk to us. I'm like, okay. <laughs> it didn't change. Nothing changed because I went up still, still me. What you about to say, Deja? No, I was going to say, even just to add on, at times, at times it feels like sometimes a, not a mutual respect of boundaries when it comes to being the token black person versus anyone else. And it comes in many ways in terms of asking, I've been asked, how can you afford to live here? Can I touch your hair? Can I do these things? And just questions where like, I've never seen anybody at anybody of another race being asked these types of questions. Um, why do you speak that way? It, and at times it's almost like a lack of respect initially when you meet people, right? There's just this entitlement to dive a little deeper into details that you wouldn't ask someone that you had a higher respect for from somewhere else. Is that your real hair? How did you do that? Um, so I think it just, it all comes together in terms of boundaries and sometimes even just respect for people you don't know and understand. Just respect in general. And I completely agree. And I'd love for you to just continue on into <laughs> diversity within fitness. No fun segue, but I think uh, we, we talked at Ignazium about the other topic and I'd love for you to, I guess, expand on the respect you've experienced or lack thereof in the fitness industry and then how more diversity can sort of help move that along. 
Yeah. And I think it even, I mean, it ties together nicely with everything we've talked about. Just really like if you have a studio that really fosters diversity is inclusive and for everyone, right? Playing hip hop isn't as big of a deal, right? You wouldn't have problems with tokenism because you naturally have people. You have naturally more exposure and experiences of different collections of people who are really different. Um, and I think I want to hit on a point Sal mentioned earlier about just how important it is to see someone out there um, to know that you can be there. I teach spin and it wasn't until I took a class, it happened to be at SoulCycle with James Lewis, who had just started. Hey now. And then I rode the class and it was amazing. I was like, wait, we can do this. We can be up in here and they, like they'll listen to, right? But, and it sounds really silly, but it's just really illustrative on, you know, places where I don't see people like me, I assume they aren't for me, right? We have five black CEOs across Fortune 500 companies and that makes me feel like that can be a goal of mine. But if there were none, I'd probably be questioning. But when it comes to just um, representation and why it's so important, not only for black bodies, bodies of color, but just for everybody, everyone benefits, everyone profits, everyone feels better when you are at a place where you feel that different types of people can all be equally successful by just showing up and owning their right to exist in this space. And I think Sally, you were on last night, um, an organization called Trillfit based in Boston has really tried to change the fitness industry in particular to drive fitness organizations to sign a pledge that is really about creating anti-racism equality and decolonizing our wellness space, which is inherently primarily white. And I think there's a lot in terms of when I teach there versus when I teach in places where I'm not the majority, it feels very different, right? And there, it's yeah. really caused me to think about the ways in which I change my way I move, the way I change the ways I coach. And it's caused me a lot of really um, good beneficial ways to just unpack that. But just everybody wins when you're at a place where there is diversity and most importantly, where everyone feels included and that they're able to belong. I... I love that point, and I, I challenge anyone listening to really delve into if you agree with that, um, because I totally agree. I think that it would it, it's beneficial for everyone to just be in a space that feels safe for everyone. Um, and I and I would ask you if you you know are a white person that works in a majority white space, whether it's fitness corporate or whatever wherever you work, do you agree that you know? working in a, in a in a largely diverse uh space would be mutually beneficial for everyone or do you think that would be tough and then ask yourself why you think that would be tough and if the answer is because i would feel uncomfortable because there there would be more people that are like different than me and i wouldn't feel comfortable then you've essentially felt like a one percent of what black people feel like in most spaces that they enter into you know what I mean? Like not really feeling comfortable all the time in these spaces that are, you know, not them, that where we don't see us or other, because honestly, like when I'm in spaces where it's just a whole bunch of everybody, I feel great. I'm like, okay, like everybody's welcome. This is great. I'm getting all the flavors and, and I'm loving it. You know what I mean? Like, I don't feel like, I, I never feel like I need more black people here. If it's just like a whole bunch of just all kinds of different people. Right. I'm never like, mm, feel more comfortable if there's some more black people here, right? But I do feel a way if I'm just the only person of color or like one of two people of color in a space, then then it's like, all right, how do I need to move, talk, walk to make sure that I'm respected? As Deja was talking about, I'm taken seriously. And that, you know, at the end of the day, I go home safely and like, you know, not having the cops called on me or anything 
ridiculous like that. Um, but I, I think that's huge. And I think, you know, I, I very much agree with that soundbite of uh, spaces would, all spaces would benefit from just having more diversity in general, because then you wouldn't have to ask, can I play hip hop? Because it just would, all the things would just be swirling around all the time, all day, every day, right? Like you have all the styles of music just happening and it wouldn't be such a big like, uh, hip hop's a black thing, can I play it? It's like, all right, don't do that. Don't do that. Um, day, day, just come on. It's like, it's right here. It's right here. It's yeah. right here. <laughs> yeah, so um, in, in touching on and segueing into um, solidarity for uh, Black people in those white spaces, um, we touched on um, why we feel uncomfortable in white spaces. And um, there's an important it's almost like an unwritten rule. There's like this unwritten rule amongst black people and we don't have to know each other and maybe we won't even get along or maybe we don't even have the same interests. Um, but there's this unwritten rule that there's this solidarity among black people in a predominantly white space, um, especially if the numbers of us are few. And it's one of those things that um, it comes back to, um, culture versus survival and how survival has sort of become part of our culture. And it's one of those things that we use in order to navigate those spaces safely um, because we can't ever really show a lot of division amongst ourselves in front of white people or in white spaces for fear that a lot of the time, you know, it'll be used against us. And, and it's, it happens time and time again where you'll have um, one black person doing something that isn't necessarily palatable or, um, you know, something that white people deem uncomfortable. And then you'll have another one that is, you know, completely palatable, you know, the model citizen, and it'll almost be used as sort of, sort of a way to single out that non-palatable black person and say, you know, why can't she be more like such and such without ever even saying that like, you know, this black person is doing what needs to be done. Why can't you do that? Or, you know, why are you stirring up controversy or causing problems? Um, and I've seen it happen time and time again. So it's one of those things where like, even on the subject of looting, I was talking about to a friend of mine about it. And, you know, everybody's got a mixed bag of opinions when it comes to it and um, the necessity of it. It, um, during revolution and the point it makes and other people think it's pointless or whatever the case may be. The thing is, you'll have black people that don't agree with it, but they won't say it in front of other white people because of the fact that they don't want the white people to use it against them. Like they'll beat the dead horse at nauseum and they'll keep on going about it. Like that whole, um, what's everyone's favorite argument? Oh, everyone loves black on black crime. They love that one. So they'll use that one over and over again as a way to sort of like, you know, push that, you know, model minority narrative. And, you know, if you're not doing this, then you're the bad seed or the bad egg. Um, yeah. So let us yeah. check us in those spaces. Yeah. And, you know, that's the biggest thing too. Let us check us. I mean, I have my white friends, they, they'll check somebody and they racism before I even have a chance to open up my mouth. And I love that about them because they really show allyship and solidarity in that way. But they know better than to check a black person on their blackness or their, you know, their wokeness. So yeah, that's solidarity. And, like, and, and something that I want to definitely highlight as we're truly in this in, in the week that we're in with everything that's happening with Jacob Blake 
is exactly what you said of if there's even like a hint of something that can be used against black people, then it's going to be used and spewed no matter what to justify any and every atrocity that happens to a black body, specifically with Jacob Blake. There were reports that came up about his past and his criminal history. And then all of a sudden that was supposed to then justify seven shots in his back. But it like speaks to that idea that white people can be quick to be like, okay, but see, mm -mm, no, see y'all talking about he's this great guy, but he did this thing. And so seven shots in the back in front of his kids while he's going to his car is that's fine. Like, absolutely not. There's nothing that justifies that. There's nothing that justifies seven shots close range in the back with kids in the back seat. There's absolutely nothing that says like, okay, reasonable, like, no, never, not for a human being that is doing nothing, that has, is doing nothing. That's never a thing. And yet we feel like we have to move like this when we see examples like this, because we're like, all right, if that could, like, if, if, a, if, a, if a criminal report can justify this, imagine what could happen if I disagree with like a black person in front of another white person on something that they're doing. Because then they're just going to take that as like, well, see, told you, Black people ain't got their shit together. It's like, okay, first off, human beings don't have their shit together. Like, let's not get it twisted. Humans don't have, we, us, <laughs> you know, as as people, as humans don't. Like, don't, like, just don't, don't try to do that. Like, it, it's, it's annoying. Um, and before we, before we get out of here, before I just keep going, because uh, I will and I can, Sal, I'd love for you to speak to the, the lobby talk that Deja start, started to mention, but that you actually attended. Yeah, so as Deja was saying, Trailfit is this Boston-based, um, purpose-driven wellness and fitness boutique studio. Um, and they recently created a pledge that commits to fighting for racial justice, anti-racism, and equality. Um, and also to create more inclusivity and a more inclusive community culture in the fitness and wellness industry. So what's really cool about the pledge is a lot of um, major platforms have signed on. So Mind, Body, and Class Pass and a local Boston studio called Bespoke were on the call last night um, talking about the pledge and like their plans um, for it. Thank you for posting that in the chat, Deja. Um, Thanks. I can talk a little bit about like the six key principles that they have if you want. Please. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Please. Okay. Yeah. So I'm going to read them off directly from the website. Um, the first <laughs> one is to increase opportunities and decrease barriers to our services for communities of color. Two, to create a company culture that reflects the community we serve. Three, create a culture of inclusion where people from diverse backgrounds feel their identity is valued and their voice is welcome, heard, and respected. Four, advanced learning about the impact of bias and systemic racism on health outcomes and create a roadmap for change. Five, collaborate with local partners and invest, not extract from the community in which my business lives. Six, ensure my business supports local organizations focused on improving health outcomes in communities of color. So really it's like a chance not only to speak about it, but to really be about it. Like what Day was saying, um, not just like being like, hey, I'm an ally, but actually being about it and showing that solidarity through action um, and putting your money and your power where your mouth is. Truly, truly. Thank you for reading those off and for sort of giving a further background to what that pledge uh, is about and specifically about being about it. Um, 
my mom, she um, she wears a lot of hats and has worn a lot of hats, but she's in activism right now as well and has been well before me. And she she's we one day I'll have her on and she'll just talk about all the all of the things that that she has done and continues to do. But she's uh, head of what's called the Black Mothers Forum. And they were recognized by the NAACP a little bit ago. And essentially, it's in Phoenix, Arizona. And they, I want to say, formed like four years ago. Um, and they essentially were just coming, they were just going to schools and like essentially speaking on behalf of Black mothers whose Black sons and Black daughters are being mistreated in schools, right, by the police or whatever the case may be, or, or unjustly arrested. Like she was just like, Black moms are affected the most by all these things, right? Like Black moms, Black moms. So like she's been doing that. Uh, and that's like, just like... <laughs> tip of the iceberg of, of sort of what she's doing as far as the black community and Phoenix and just the world. But we were talking on the phone two days ago and she called me because, you know, Jacob Blake and she wanted to hear from me and just, you know, make sure that her, she was like, I, you know, I always have to remember like you are a black man. And while you've been, while I've had favor and while I've been able to sort of move how I move with not too many issues, she's like, I still have to remember like you're a black man in the world. I just wanted to check on you. And then we started talking about just, you know, racism in general and sort of how we can see the change we want to see. And to the point of some of the pledge, it's like, at some point, white people are just going to have to do, <laughs> do with it. Um, because Black people have been fighting way, way, way too long to like little change. Um, and not to say that we'll ever stop fighting and not to say that, you know, we're just gonna like you know give up the ranks and be like all right white people go handle it because like absolutely not but there should definitely be more slack uh taken by people that are responsible for and or benefiting from because what i'm not gonna do is just call out white people and be like you were you know you black you know you white person right now in 2020 are part of slavery like no obviously you're not you just are a beneficiary of that the systems that have been put in place since that time, right? And being as your beneficiary, like you sort of have the opportunity to spread said benefits or use your benefits to change the systems that have been put in place. But what becomes uncomfortable is realizing what giving up those benefits and those privileges could actually look like, right? But it's about addressing that head on. And then if, if you don't wanna give that up, then at least own it. But what what is what isn't helping this conversation? What isn't helping change is for people toeing the line and being stagnant, like sort of like what Day was saying, like just being not a racist, but not actively being an anti-racist. Because anti-racist and anti-racism is putting your privilege to use for the people around you, for the minorities around you. Being a non-racist is inactive. You, you simply are continuing to hop in on this privilege and these benefits while also being like, hey, I don't say racist things and I don't partake in racism outwardly. That said, I am benefiting from racism greatly. So keep it up racism. Like that's sometimes what non-racism could be like, you know, like keep up the good work. I'm not a part of it, but also thanks for my privileges and my benefits, right? And like, that's the issue. And so I, my mom essentially was like, I think, you know, like white people, white people eventually are going to have to take a big part of this if we want to see a big move in the needle. And um, like, as sad as it is, that that is the reality. And I, I think I can believe that. That's not to say I'm going to stop doing what I'm doing. And that's not to say black people stop doing what you're doing. Like, we're always going to be loud. Uh, but 
for us to get this needle moving, we're gonna need some more solidarity. Solidarity, Allyship is great, but I need some accomplices. We talked about that day one on this show. Like we need people in the trenches with us, caught with us. An accomplice is, you know, an accessory. They're right there with you <laughs> in the crime. And so I need you right there with me on the lines, right? I need you right there next to me. Um, and next to my black brothers and sisters and just BIPOCs in general. Like the way we do on these pride walks needs to be the same way we're doing these Black Lives Matter walks in all black lives. Let's make that very clear. All black lives matter. Um, not just, just the ones that you're seeing, not just the pretty ones, not just the successful ones, not just the entertainers, the athletic ones, like all black lives matter. And I, I sort of wanna, I just wanted to make sure, cause it, it was right there for me. To, to say it, so I just needed to, to say it. I think this conversation was incredible. And I hope the people listening are able to take so many things away, but at least one, at least one thing that you can then put into practice for yourself. And so what I would say that you can put into practice for sure is analyze whether or not you're a non-racist or an anti-racist, and then ask yourself, can you put your benefits and your privilege where your mouth is? Because until you can do that, I don't know that you can ever be an anti-racist. I think it sounds good. I think it looks good. I think um, it's nice to, to feel like you're a part of a quote unquote movement, right? But actually being an anti-racist is doing something. And that something is putting, you know, literally episode one, it's prioritizing your privilege. I get to return to it. Like literally prioritize your privilege for the betterment and the amplification and elevation of BIPOC people all around you. Um, all of that said, I am so happy uh, that I was able to be joined by Deja, Sal, and Day. Um, people listening, white people. My voice is tired. White people. <laughs> Remember, it's not about being perfect. It's about being present in this, OK? So if you're going to fail, fail forward but do not be afraid to make mistakes on your way to the changes that you want to see. That, that, that holds us back. I think I was talking today about it. It's like, if you're trying to defend somebody or like you're on a court or a field or you're doing something and you're a little hesitant, like all it takes is one juke. You know what I mean? And you're going the opposite way. And like, it took nothing because you were hesitant. You're like, I don't know how to do this. Like, if you're going to fail, just be like balls to the wall, like as hard as you can, because then you'll at least fail forward, right? You'll at least, fail in the right direction, get up, you know, brush yourself off and be like, okay, that's where I made my mistake, but I'm still going hard as an anti-racist. So you don't have to be perfect, be present. Don't tiptoe, be flat-footed, okay? Okay, uh, Deja, Sal, Day, please say goodbye to everybody before we hop off. I'm so thankful for you all. No, we're thankful for you too. And this was really awesome to be here with everybody. Um, and I think the one thing I would add on too is I just heard earlier this week a quote that made me kind of startle. But we think about Emmett Till being like the first person that really was the victim of senseless violence or the first widely known person, excuse sure, me. Sure, publicized, yeah. Right. But <laughs> he would have been younger than Morgan Freeman is today. And it's interesting and it gives us pause that we're not even a lifetime out um, from really what we think is the catalyst of a long series of the struggle of Black America after racism. And so it just gives me pause and just shows how hard the work is, but how much time we really need to make up uh, to overcome our past. But happy to Absolutely. express my thoughts on here. Thank you so much for coming. <laughs>
Thank you, Deja. Yes, definitely. I um, want to thank you for opening up this channel and um, starting this from the inception of it. Um, and I remember um, jumping on uh, part 10 and just being so moved by the discussion. And um, thanks for just holding the space for us, um, especially as Black women, um, to vocalize and um, let people know who we are and all our glory and all our um, variousness and our diversity, even just amongst ourselves. Um, and yeah, just, you know, being wrong and strong. You know, um, we're talking about that failing forward and how we had that discussion. It's like, yeah, go, you know, 10 toes down, just completely, you know, if you're going to do it, do it. No half stepping. Yeah. So just keep moving forward. <laughs> and, you know, progress is a slow process. Yeah. yeah. I just want to say thank you for creating this space for us to come together and talk about this. I think it's really important to have the voices of Black women in this conversation, especially in the fitness space and the wellness space. Um, and just to add on, I think allyship and solidarity, it is better to take imperfect action than to just like overanalyze it and think about like, how can I do this perfectly? Just, just do it, be there for us um, and support us because it's, it's life or death at this point. Absolutely. Wow. Those were, I have nothing else to say. Um, for your discomfort, shouts out to Deja, Sal, and Day on part 18. Uh, part 19 will be next Friday, 12.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, 9.30 a.m. PST. Um, the, the podcast, this, this uh, conversation will be out uh, Monday um, on Spotify and Apple Music. And um, great content on its way. I just got approved on some uh, locations and some partnerships are like actually approved so now I get to start uh filming great stuff and I can't wait and uh just be be on the lookout because um Discomfort Studios is a real thing now and uh it's about to go down so you like that you like that okay <laughs> I'll see you guys later have a great day put a hand clap of praise on that bye <laughs> bye y'all bye. bye take care thanks for stepping into the room that was a lot but was also pretty great. You got this. Remember, it's not about being perfect. It's about being present. Keep leaning in. Keep listening. Keep learning. And I'll see y'all next time.